All right, so I promised after we got through four messages on hell and there were questions about uh, expectations for the afterlife, that, that we would need to look at some things like judgment and then, of course, some of the other uh, stuff in the Scripture that is, generally speaking, received as future stuff like the lake of fire and and all of that. But judgment is a real significant concept in the middle of all that because judgment is somewhat of a a why question or a, a how and a what question. In other words, what leads to what? Judgment's one of those things. And I, I do think that judgment is, is, is generally misunderstood in our culture, uh, not just because I'm confused, but because I think <laughs> a lot of people are. So... To conceive of judgment as if it can exist apart from our relationship with God is the reason I think people are confused. I think that we look at it and we think about it as if it's um, sort of an abstract or an objective situation when I don't believe it is. I think that it's impossible to understand not the general principle of judgment, but what we're talking about when we talk about judgment and uh the, the resolution of sin. And if you remember, the, the question that we asked a long, long time ago that kind of led us into the image-bearing thing and then led us into the idea of new creation, led us into the review of the Holy Spirit's work, was what did John the Baptist mean when he saw Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And for the most part, judgment is all about dealing with the sin of the world, not taking it away. It's all about um, a compensation for, an evaluation of, something like that. So it's really critical that we understand who it is that has the authority to judge. And I'm not talking about the splitting the particulars up among the Trinity right now. I'm just talking about God, you know, Abraham... Uh, at the beginning of that big negotiation with God about Sodom and 50 people, 45 people, 30 people, he said, is, uh, is the judge of the whole earth going to do justly? And um, it's a fascinating story. It's something one I read again this week looking at this stuff. But let's start here at this place <laughs> to understand judgment. And you guys will probably let out a groan because I've repurposed a couple of white ones. <laughs> yeah, don't judge. Don't judge me for using the same icon all the time. But I, I want to keep this in front of us, and this is what I mean by the fact that it, to understand judgment in a meaningful way, we, we need to understand the revelation, of course, that's presented in Scripture, but we need to realize that that revelation is about the activities, the administration, the purposes of this God that we know, that is spirit, fire, light, love, and love. And you almost never hear that juxtapositioned against doctrinal or theological discussions about judgment. At least I don't. And I think we should. And I don't think we need to be afraid of that. And I actually think that because we don't, there's a lot that goes unseen and unsaid in Scripture. For instance, here's a passage. I'm going to read this to you out of Exodus. And tell me if this isn't 
doesn't rock your world. This is God-given instruction about or about the making of the holy garments for Aaron. Okay? You guys all know what the ephod is, right? That sort of breastplate type thing. That's not the only breastplate ornament that God ordained. So, uh, Exodus 28, beginning in verse 15, I'm going to read down to verse 30. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment, the work of a skilled workman, like the work of the ephod you shall make it, of gold, of blue, of purple, of scarlet material, and fine twisted linen you shall make it. It shall be square and folded double, a span in length and a span in width. You shall mount it on it four rows of stones. The first row shall be the row of ruby, topaz, and emerald. And the second row, a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, now a hyacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, fourth row a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigrees. Now, I'm not talking about the ephod. I'm talking about this thing that says it's called a breast piece of judgment. Okay? Uh, you shall mount it and do this, that, and the other thing. Four rows, blah, blah, blah. The stones shall be according to the names of the sons of Israel. Now, maybe this thing does a double duty, and I don't know about it, but, but just listen, and this is amazing. The stones shall be according to the names of the sons of Israel. Twelve according to their names. They shall be like the engravings of a seal each according to his name for the twelve tribes. You shall make on the breastpiece chains of twisted cordage, works in pure gold. You shall make on the breastpiece two rings of gold and shall put the two rings on the two ends of the breastpiece. This may end up, be, this may actually be the ephod. I don't know. I'm not sharp enough on all that stuff. But nevertheless, let me keep reading because I want you to hear this. Uh, you shall put the two golds of cord on the two rings at the end of the breastpiece. You shall put the other two ends of the two cords on the filigree settings and put them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod at the front of it. So maybe yes. Okay. You shall make two rings of gold and shall place them on the two ends of the breast piece on the edge of it, which is toward the inner side of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them on the bottom and two shoulder pieces of the ephod on the front of it, close to the place where it is joined above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. They shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the ring of the ephod and the blue cord. So, so they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a blue cord. So see, it sounds like a separate thing. All right. Uh, they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the ring of the ephod and the blue cord so that it will be on the skillfully woven band of the ephod and that the breastpiece will not come loose from the ephod. Okay. Aaron, now listen, this is what's beautiful though. Listen to this. Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. You shall put the breastpiece of the judgment, you shall put in the breastpiece of the judgment, the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. And Aaron shall carry the judgment of the sons of Israel 
over his heart before the Lord continually. Now, do you see how that <laughs> do you see how that relates to how important it is to know who judgment is about and who judgment is from? I don't understand the full significance of that. But when I saw that, these garments being made for Aaron to worship the Lord and to serve the nation of Israel and to foretell the whole of the tabernacle and the whole of the temple structure and to foretell literally the Messiah has a special set of instructions called the breast piece of judgment specifically so that he could carry the names of the sons of Israel on his heart every time he went in and served the Lord. Now, have you ever heard that picture of judgment associated with a discussion about judgment? I never have. I never have. Judgment what does that say about what God's doing? Does that mean that he wanted a critical view of the sons of Israel to be carried around on the chest of the high priest? No. It's called the breast piece of judgment. And there's only like three words in the Old Testament that use it. So it's not like it's an obscure word. I think it's Mizpah, but I'm not 100% sure. Yeah. This is a revelation of how God sees judgment. And I've never seen it that way. And I think I'm wrong. And if that was the only thing that I was share tonight, we should walk away going, wow, it probably is worth taking another look at judgment. But, but, the, but the reasoning given for that, let me read those last two or three sentences, and then we'll... Go to one more place. Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord, before the Lord, continually. And I don't know enough about it to speak intelligently on it. Some, you guys might. But the Urim and Thurm, uh, they were those stones that when they inquired, made special inquiry of the Lord, they actually interacted with the spirit and they interacted with them and something. So we're talking the literal centerpiece of interaction between the high priest and Yahweh. And it was designed to be perpetually in the presence of the names of the sons of Israel over his heart. And I don't think that he had an issue with Aaron was trying to get him to have a good heart. I think this was a picture of where God carries us, carries the sons of Israel, carries the tribes right on his heart in a place called the breastpiece of judgment. Now we've got to at least give that some room in our definition, our thinking, and our expectation about judgment. I thought that's cool. Then, of course, there's this passage. John 3.16, we know all about that love, but then we know it gets down into judgment too, right? And I've said that a lot. I consider this the, well, now, 
one of the two quintessential <laughs> verses in the Bible that reveal the nature and purpose of judgment. One is to keep personal with the heart of God. The other is this. So let me read this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. So what's the purpose? Is the purpose to balance the scales? Is the purpose of this light that is judgment? Is the purpose of that to try to, you know, get the guys that need to be got and all this kind of stuff? No. It says right there, it says that the purpose of this is so that someone who is in the truth will know that the deeds of their life are actually made, wrought, hammered out, fashioned in God. That's the purpose of judgment. Now I don't fully understand that. I don't know how to I don't know how to do that. So this shows both of these show that if we allow ourselves to slip out to me, if we allow ourselves to slip into a fundamentally negative characterization of judgment. We're going to miss at least half, but maybe most, of what was in the heart and mind of God regarding judgment. Because this is a, fairly, a pretty early thing. There's another verse doesn't talk about judgment, but judgment's one of the first things that happened after creation. Remember all the times in Genesis where it said, and God saw the light, and the day and the night, and it was good, and God saw, and it was good, and God saw, and it was good? He's judging it. I asked Vicki... Uh, because one of the conversations we always get is people talk about, well, God is a judge, you know. So, and you guys know that I'm kind of sensitive to the God is thing because there's not that many places where it says God is. And, but we assume a lot of those and judge, begin judge is one of them. Um, so one of the things we're going to work on tonight's a bit of an introduction, obviously. Uh, and I'm not going to go into this any more than just this tonight, but I'll just throw it out there to confuse everybody. I don't think that it's, the best way to understand God and judgment to think that he is intrinsically a judge, like he is, you know, his, his core essence, because I can't think of any reason that he was a judge before things were created. There was, unless we're only talking the decision to create, but the idea that, that God sits and is somehow offended and can't tolerate things out of whack. Well, Things weren't out of whack before he decided to create. So that wasn't a big issue to him. He responded to the out of whackness, you know, right away. And so I'm not saying that he's not the judge. I am. I think he is. But it's not something intrinsic to him like spirit is or like light is or fire or something along those lines where it says that. So anyway, there's two pretty positive examples of judgment 
that talk about both where they came from, what their method is, the light idea and stuff. So we'll keep going. So where can we learn about judgment? This is the indispensable word nerd stuff. So hopefully your eyes will not roll back in your head. (laughs) There are a finite number of passages that are much of the revelation on any topic. Agreed? So let's try to understand what those scriptures say before we assign them a meaning. Or what I'm really asking is before we just assume a meaning that we already have or that somebody else told us. Because a lot of stuff, kind of like the way the word hell carried such a baggage packet to it, a lot of that stuff is like this. So here we go. There are three words in the Old Testament uh, that speak of judgment. Mishpat, 422 times. Uh, this is, there's actually more words because there's three of them, uh, but they're all the same word family. Uh, Diane or Dion, there's three of those and they're used 44 times. And then Shapat is used 202 times. So Mishpah, now I want you to notice, keep an eye on these numbers. And if you want to check and, and uh, if my math's wrong and you prove it to me, I'll, I'll of course appreciate that and change it. But 422 times Mishpat is used in the Old Testament, Hebrew Scriptures. It is translated judgment 322 times. And again, I'm using, Ronnie, that Englishman's Concordance where I look for that one, uh, that Strong's number, and it gives all those instances. And it that, that uh, Concordance works in the King James. There are a few other translations, obviously, where those numbers will vary. But 320, in other words, uh, there's a hundred other words or, that are a hundred different other times that it's translated different words. So one of the, 41 of those times is after the manner of, and I'll explain that in just a little bit. Uh, 16 times it refers to a right or rights. Now you can sort of understand this when we get into it because there's a judicial aspect going on in this thing. A cause, same situation, like you would advocate the cause of somebody as a judicial deal. And then to or of a law or an ordinance. And then there are 14 others that have just one instance of peace. And there's, I didn't put them all up there, but there are rules in the fashion of, or after the fashion of is one of those, uh, a custom. So do you see how these things are starting to relate a little bit? In other words, there's a tradition, there's a, a thing that's been going on, and you're being measured against that, or the circumstances being measured against it, judged against it. Like, that's not the way we did it. That's a judgment. That's like after the fashion of or the ordinance. Um, then there are some that are like f- decisions. So like discern is used, uh, disposing of. Uh, I don't know if you've ever used that expression, but uh, I'm just about done with this project. You know, it's kind of like saying I'm about ready to dispose of this this plan. Okay. <laughs> and so that's that's what Mishpat is like. The next one we're going to look at is Shapat. Shapat is a judge. It's the primary word that's used when as a noun when it's talking about a judge or it's talking about a judge judging, the, the act of to judge. And so there are 202 times of that, but either as the, the noun judge or the verb that that noun person does, 
uh, is 184 out of those out of those 202. So one of the cases is called will plead, like you plead a case or you plead a cause. Okay, um, avenge. There's two instances of that. I will avenge you or the judge will avenge the people or something along those lines. And then there are five more that are one each. Contends, defend, deliver, reason with, and from those that condemn. I don't truly understand. I haven't studied all that particular one out, what the context of that is. But it, it most of those have something to do with the activities of the judges in Israel. And that's another thing to think about, about not allowing ourselves to have sort of a monolithically negative view of the idea of judges. Because of the most significant uh, repeated reference in the Old Testament to judge was to these fearless and, and good people that recaptured the leadership structure and began to protect and deliver the children of Israel after they went out. We'll look at our quick set of scriptures about that. But, so again, look at that ratio. So there's like 11, 12, 13, uh, and then five more. So that's like 18 out of 202 that aren't judge. And then the middle one, ones, uh, these words, these three words are used 28 times. Uh, plea or plead is used four. A cause is used eight. Strife shows up twice as a contentious thing between people and then contend. And then the word minister is used once. So uh, that one, we've got uh, 10, 16 out of the uh, 44. So 28. All right. So out of all of these, and this is this is the entire body of verbal reality about judgment in the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's big. I mean, there's a lot there. But out of 668 uses of these words, 534 are directly translated as judgment or judge. That's 80%. And then all those little... And you can see how some of them are sort of related anyway, like the idea of arguing a cause or the judge idea of defending or delivering or something along those lines. So... You'll notice some stuff that's not up there that you will run into in a minute in the New Testament. The idea of damnation is not present in this word. And the idea of condemnation is not present in this word. I just wanted to emphasize that. I think um, between religious traditions and reactions to religious traditions, I think people really tie the word judgment with condemnation, mm-hmm. that they're almost synonyms for each other. Right. And it's like, literally, the judgment can mean, in its generalist sense, is decision. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. says, don't judge me. It's like, I can make decisions. Yeah. It doesn't mean I'm condemning you, thinking bad things. But, you know, if the light's going to turn red at the intersection, I have to make a judgment about... <laughs> Yeah. If nobody's getting condemned, nobody's no bad things are happening. We're just evaluating a situation and making a decision Absolutely. based on that. And I think yeah, it's got So to what do you think the advantage is to backing away from that sort of traditional association and just thinking a little bit more clearly or open mindedly or Let's see what's being right. said. You have to fo- yeah, and you need to follow the longer context of the sentence. If it just says there's a judgment say, okay, 
and what's the outcome of the judgment? If it doesn't say, then there's not a lot of conclusions you can right. make. If he says, like you did in John three sixteen, this is judgment, he's told you what the conclusion is. Mm -hmm. So you know, you know, and there's other places it's a little more ambiguous. There's other places where the judgment is positive, you know, the whole creation thing. It's all I, it's a judgment that it was good, yeah. you know. So, yeah. yeah, we need to, we just need to detach that, that it itself is not the conclusion, it's the introduction. And we have to see where I it think goes. that's a good way to put it, because it, it, yeah. it does turn out to be that a lot. And if we don't think that way, we'll end up missing. So again, the reason that we're looking at this is I had a whole bunch of, of you go, so what do we expect in the afterlife? Well, judgment is one of those sort of defining concepts that create our expectations. And if all we expect out of judgment is condemnation, we're going we're gonna to miss the joy that the Bible actually talks about judgment in. So, all right. So anyway, so you get the ratio, right? Over 80% are are directly there. All right. So here's a few Old Testament scriptures. I, I, I told you that one. Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart. There's nothing negative about that at all. That is absolutely lovely. It is paternal. It is, these are my people. I am their God kind of thing. And this thing is called the breastpiece of judgment. And it's associated with that amazing interactive, supernatural thing that God used to govern Israel. Okay. How about this one? This is one of the earliest mentions of the actual word judgment in Leviticus 19.15. You shall do no injustice in judgment. This is a command being given to the people of Israel. So judgment is something that we have a role in too. Paul says, don't you know that you judge angels? Or he's talking to the Corinthians. Why do you sue one another and go to court? Don't you have the ability to judge? You know, so judgment is a part of our gig as well. But look at, look at the definition of it here. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. That is a long way from condemnation. That is all about justice. That is all about truthfulness and stuff. Uh, here in Judges 2 and down here, then, okay, this is the situation where judges were given to Israel. Where the, if you probably, my guess is if you were talking to a Jew that was really immersed in their history, and you talked about a judge, their thoughts would go back to this part of their history. Because here's the sort of setup. Then, and that little note is mine just to tell you guys, after the death of Joshua and the elders that were alive at his time, the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Those crazy Israelites. We just looked at the same thing a bunch of years later with, with uh, Ahaz and Manasseh and all that stuff. Okay, so hey, cut him a break. We sometimes do the same thing, right? So God judged Israel for that. And here's what he did. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. <laughs> That's just a few verses later. God's reaction to the Israelites going after Baal 
as soon as the influence of Joshua and the elders that were alive in his day died, was to call up people, give them the title of judge for the sake of delivering the children of Israel out of the mess that they had gotten themselves into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she asked, uh, is, is one of the subplots about governing? I think so. I mean, you know, that period of time, for sure it was. And and so... Oh, uh, the definitions? I don't have any definitions. I was just looking at the scriptures. The Englishman's Concordance. The Englishman's Concordance. Englishman's Concordance. So, sorry, Zoomers. A little inside baseball here. Um, anyhow, but do you see the... Do you, Again, the point of this scripture, it reveals the heart of God. Did God thunder down some kind of isolating judgment or punishing judgment? No. They went after Baal, and he raised up judges to deliver them from that folly. To govern them, like you said. Here's another one. In Ecclesiastes, I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man, for a time for every matter and for every deed is here. If if an Israelite carried the kind of conditional thinking we have about judgment, with it being, oh boy, the hammer's coming down, and it's going to end up in verdict, it's going to end up in condemnation, this would be a frightening verse. But it's not. That's not what it said. It's say that judgment applies to both. It has a purpose in both. It's very much like what we read when Jesus says, every man's work will be salted with fire. (laughs) Every man. You mean mine? Or when I got the revelation out of Romans 1, when I was talking about the wrath of God, the wrath of God is revealed in heaven against all, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And I ask the Lord, I say, even me? Even my blood washed, born again, confessing Jesus' unrighteousness? That's what it's for. Okay? So, you see what I'm saying? I'm just making a case that we, just like what Dan emphasized, we can't just assign this as a negative thing that brings about a, a, a verdict against you kind of idea. Now, how about this one? I had to go to the uh, um, Young's Literal so I could get the English equivalent here because uh, most of the other, like New American Standard, don't translate mispah as judge, not here. But let me, look at this. I mean, is there a more significant scripture that is an interface between what God did and what he's doing and the Messiah? and the, all this? For a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us, and the princely power is on his shoulders. And he doth call his name Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. And this is where you get into the governance, Jen. To the increase of his princely power and of peace, there is no end. On the throne of David... And on his kingdom, what's the purpose? To establish it and to support it in judgment and in righteousness. Henceforth, even unto the age, the zeal of Jehovah of hosts does this. Judgment is not something that you use to call out the people that don't belong in the under the age. 
It is an element of the support and the establishing of the government that rests on the shoulders of the unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. We have to find a place for judgment in our minds and in our theology that is more positive than most of us have grown up with, and most positive than we thought. To gut this out of there would be terrible. And unfortunately, it does happen in most of the other translations. And then here's that little one about Genesis. It doesn't say judgment in there, but I started reading it and I just go, well, every time God looked at something, oh, this is good. Oh, this is good. Oh, this is good. Oh, this is really good. Very good. So, while judgment can be frightening, and and obviously I didn't just line a whole bunch of ones up here about uh, frightening judgments, you know, coming down on Babylon or coming down on this place. Those are true too. But I just figured we had a whole library of those kind of thoughts in our head. I want to try to make a little room for some new ones to be in there. In Israel's history, judges and their judging met brave leaders providing safety and deliverance. Let's keep both sides of judgment before us as we get ready to move into the New Testament revelation and think about judgment and how we're going to think about the role that judgment is going to play in establishing the kingdom, how it's going to play, the role it's going to play in establishing the government that we can expect to govern the afterlife, our afterlife. Okay? Uh, judgment has always been and still is flowing from the heart of the one who is love. And then here's a passage that I would like to see people with a positive view about judgment free to believe this. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The throne of grace. Most of the pictures I grew up with about judgment and throne wasn't a place of grace and it wasn't pleasant. But this is sort of the pivotal point in in the book of Hebrews. We come there to find grace and help in time of need. That is a place of judgment. So was Jesus on the cross. Okay, so we got a lot to learn anyway. Anyway, it's just an interaction. Right? Okay, now into the New Testament. So here's a few words that are about judgment in the New Testament. And I want you to watch them closely because they're more important than just me run, rambling through the numbers. So krima is one of them. It's used 27 times. 13 times it's translated judgment. Six times it's translated either condemn, condemned, or condemnation. Six times it's translated damnation. One time is translated has avenged, kind of in the in the picture of the judges, uh, you know, judging the countries around Israel. And then one time is the idea of go to law. It's in that thing about getting sued in, in Corinth. Okay, so just look at the ratio again. Twenty-seven times thirteen of that twenty-seven is judgment or judgments. Six are translated condemned, six damn. Okay, here's the next one. This is Crino. Crino is used 114 times. 89 out of the 114 uh, is judgment or judge. Condemnation is six. Determined, and this is a good introduction to some other stuff that gets translated. I determined to go or we determined to go. It's making a judgment, right? In your head. It's making a decision. That's what you were talking about, Dan, just the decision aspect of judgment. So I understand that translation. Damned is once, 
At law is three times different from the one go to law up there, but it's the same concept. Esteemed. Paul says, uh, one man esteems one day higher than others, and another esteems all days the same. He's talking about rendering a judgment, right? Okay, that's what the esteemed means. And then called in question. I think this passage is used only, the, the two of these, is when Paul says, I care very little whether people judge me or not. But in the in one the translation that this was in, I care very little that people call me into question. I don't even call myself into question. So it's rendering a judgment in that. Avenged is there. Concluded. That just means what it says. You know, I thought about something, and this is the conclusion I came to. And then decreed. I don't really fully understand why they translated that this, but I'll dig into it. And then my sentence is like a judicial thing. So, you know, my sentence, according to what I see the truth here is, is blah, blah, blah. I think that was had something to do with that guy in Corinth. All right, but look at again the ratio. 89 times out of 114, it's judgment. So what is that? 18? Okay. Croesus. This is an interesting word. It's used 47 times, and it is the Greek base to where we get the word crisis from. So that idea of a judgment presenting us with the crisis is kind of an interesting one. And I'm not 100% sure, but I think this is the one in Hebrews where it says it's appointed for a man who wants to die, and then the crisis. But you can check that out for me if I'm wrong. I didn't go into the detail on that. It's just past knowledge. Anyway, so 47 times this word is in there. 41 times it's translated judge or judgment. Pretty high ratio. Condemn snuck in there three times. Damnation snuck in there once. And accusation, and I understand how accusation could be, because uh, there's a thing like that, you know, and uh, accusation's in there twice. Now, this is where I'm going to ask you the challenging question. All right? There's 188 uses of these three words for judgment. The judicial uh, judgment or thought use of that is 163. The damn, condemn, or avenge is 25. Okay? So, does that ratio give us, or I'm really asking you, does it give you permission to question the legitimacy of the translation of damn or condemn? And I think at the very least, we have to ask the question. But a lot of people have a huge definition of judgment built on condemnation. Huge. And we'll look at it in a little bit. All right. So that's what I'm saying. Anything there that's stirred anything up? Now, this next slide is really important in trying to see, if you waver at all on having permission to question that here, this next slide should help you decide. There are five other New Testament Greek words that are translated condemn or condemnation or damn. Again, this is the entire corpus of judgment language in Scripture. Kata dikadzo. It's used five times. Three times it's translated condemn. 
uh, condemned, and two times it's translated condemned. Okay? This next one, you'll notice something interesting. Katakrino. Where did we see Krino before? On the previous one, right? Kata means down. Means down. That's a good. Yeah. Yeah. It means down. So it's like a judgment down. Uh, Katakrino is used 18 times. Look at the math. Seven times condemn. Seven times condemned. Two times condemns. Two times damned. That adds up to 18. If, if your math is slow like mine. Oh, look. Katakrima. One of the other words we looked at. It's just it's similar to that. It, down, it, this means down the Krispy Kreme. Uh, it's used three times. All three times are the word condemnation. Here's another. Oh, look. Kata, Krisios. It's the same two roots. Kata, down, adding emphasis. And Krisis. It's used two times. Guess what? One time for condemnation, one time for condemn. Here's a weird one. Kata Gnosko. To know down. <laughs> Downward knowledge. It's used three times. Two are the word condemn. One is blame. The blame is when Paul uh, challenged Peter when he was describing it to the Galatians or something. And he said he was to be blamed because he had withdrawn from the Gentiles. So there was a ju definite judgment rendered there. Yeah. Yeah, he's wrong. I think Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm going to back up again just to, just to emphasize a point. So sorry. Oop. All right. With these three words that mean judgment, out of 188, 163 say judgment, and somehow 25 dams and condemns got snuck in there. Out of these four words, five words, it's 100% translated condemn. So my question is, they're used 31 times, and 30 of them are translated condemn or damn. The one is blamed, which has the same thought. What do you think these specific words most likely meant to the biblical authors, Paul and others, who wrote them. They meant condemned. That's what this word, these words mean. It's a judgment down, like a verdict, like a final, bah, the thing that we think about. It's the thumb down. Yeah, that's what it means. What do you think the other? It means judge. It doesn't mean condemn. Let's look at a couple verses. So here's one, crema, and, and I'm going to look at more of these later on. But, oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, crema, and unfathomable his ways. How would that verse read if you put condemnation in there? How unsearchable are his condemnations? 
You know, now they didn't do that. I'm not saying anybody put it there. But you don't need a context to tell the difference. This just fits. I understand why they didn't do it. How about this one? But if our unrighteousness, Paul is pretty upset when he's writing this, I think. Sounds like it anyway. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? That's crema. But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come? It's not just that their judgment is well-deserved. The New American Standard, the King James, bunches of Bibles go, oh, their condemnation. I mean, we're talking all the way down. All, you know what I'm saying? Their condemnation. But it's not kata krima. It's just krima. Their judgment. Now, would, the, would, would that make just as good a sense? Let us do, you know, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do good that evil may come. Their judgment is just. Yeah. You don't have to put condemnation in there. Put judgment. How about this one? This is my favorite for tonight. A widow is to be put, this is Paul writing to Timothy, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desire and disregard Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. Now, come on. Couldn't it read, thus incurring judgment? Of course. Now, I'm not saying it's a good idea for them to give up their commitment to being on the widow's list and to get all hot and bothered and want to go get married. And it's fine. I'm not. But even if a gal did that, is condemnation the thing that Paul's trying to say that they're going to come under? Uh, no, it, it's sometimes a, but it's usually a third party term if it's not. When it's associated with God and with the church, in other words, like the Jews uh, sent Jesus to Pilate to be condemned. And that's, that's, katakrina is one of those words. But, but I'm, what I'm saying is, is if Paul had meant judgment, because he's the one that used most of those kata words, he would have wrote it. But he didn't. He wrote judgment. Thus incurring judgment. Because. You see what I'm saying? I don't think that it's warranted to do that. Here's a couple more. Every person is to be in subjection to the government. This, this actually is my favorite. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So, Jen, if you push back at a school meeting against Merrick Garland's designation of you being a domestic terrorist, you got condemnation coming your way. 
from God. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, sir. Are there any uh, versions that translated it as judgment then yeah. instead of? Okay. Yeah, there's there's quite a few, quite a few. But uh, there's there's a there's a big tradition. This is the way translation stuff happens. King James translates it one way, then other things come out. Yeah, uh, for instance, Young's literal translate that judgment. You know. Uh huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not saying that judgment doesn't have a negative side. It's just not all negative. But condemnation pretty much doesn't have a positive side. And so it carries, and in strategic theological places, it carries horsepower. No, no, no. How about this one, though? Romans 8, 1 and 2. There, I was surprised that New American Standard translated this this way. Therefore, I mean, no, I wasn't surprised. I wasn't surprised it translated this way. It would be foolish to translate the other way. Therefore, there is now no condemnation, katakrima, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do we just randomly get to say, oh, that just means judgment? No. Because is there judgment? Yes. Is there condemnation? No. And Paul knew that and used the word that meant condemnation instead of the word that uh, 80% of the time even under the worst circumstances, is translated judgment. So anyway, uh, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus set you free from law, sin, and death. All right, so considering that there are, and this is the important part of that last slide or two, considering that there are five words that actually mean consistently, both in Scripture and in Greek context around outside, mean condemnation. Why translate the three words that mean judgment as condemnation? Does that paint the clearer picture? Is that honest scripture? I don't think so. I think that it's translated that way, like especially the idea of women, young women, breaking their commitment to be on the widow's list. That has cultural, patriarchal, misogynistic kind of overtones to it. I'm sorry. It does. It does. So, as we take our next couple steps with judgment, we're going to sort these out a little bit this way and see if it brings any kind of clarity. And see if it opens any doors for expectations about the role that judgment is going to play to establish the amazing government of God that rests on the shoulders of Jesus. And I... I, I'm not at all inclined to say there's no negative overtones of judgment. No, there is. It's just, it, it's not exclusive. It's not the way we talk about it and think about it. Uh, there are a lot of really amazing positive judgments as well. So, any thoughts? We're done. Last one? Yes, sir. So since there's three different terms for judgment, mm -hmm. does that imply possibly different levels of judgment? I haven't looked at it that way. Um, that would be interesting. It, Yeah, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't. You mean the crema, crino, and uh, the other one? 
Yeah, I don't, I, I don't see that distinction in there, but I haven't looked that close, so that's a good question. I'll look. Yeah, they don't really know. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, Ronnie was reminding me of something we talked about in our, I was on Zoom last week, mm -hmm. table talk. And uh, in the question, it said uh, something about judgment and punishment. And it kind of linked the two almost. It was judgment and punishment. Mm -hmm. And my first thought when I read that was, if you're in relationship with Abba, those two words are opposite. I punish Abby if she tries to touch the wood-burning stove and it's got a fire inside of it. I'll punish her because mm -hmm. I don't want her to do that. But I won't judge her like, you're out of here. Scram. Go find another house. I won't do that. I would never do that. There's no mm -hmm. chance. It's completely against every fiber of my being to do that. But it's in every fiber of my being to make sure she doesn't touch that wood-burning stove. Right. Well, and, and I think that we, we have sometimes equate those two, and I agree. I would suggest, though, that you also do judge, but you judge favorably a lot of times. Oh, honey, that's really cute. Or that cookie you made me tastes really good. That kind of thing. Doris, yes. So Romans 8, Romans 8, 1. I looked it up in my One New Man Bible, and um, it references Isaiah 59. And Isaiah, 50, Isaiah 59 says that, it, um, Behold, Adonai, the Lord will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? So I interpret that as a condemnation in Romans 8.1, the condemnation coming from man, you know, saying, if God's not going to condemn me, who do, what do I care about man condemning me? And how these things work back and forth. That's one of the fundamental things about judgment is, especially if, when you see it in, in, the, in the Old Testament, it's all over the place. The, the children of Israel in various ranks were assigned the role of judging. And like Paul, that's why it's such a mysterious statement to us, because we don't think in those terms when Paul says, don't you know that you're going to judge angels? Or we don't have images of that. Most of us don't, uh, because we just don't want to give up our, our sort of monolithic thing. But yeah, that's a great observation. All right. Well, I am. Any others? So, does it make you nervous decoupling the two sides of judgment? No? Okay. A little? There's some fierce judgment, believe me. We'll get to it. And there's some expectation of that, but even the fierce judgment and whatever else we see in association with that, Keep in mind, it's the one who, one of the first mentions of judgment in the community life of Israel when they were becoming a nation was, I want you to stick these stones over your heart every time you're in my presence. Not a negative thought in the bunch. Pretty impressive. Okay. Well, Father, thank you. 
uh, open our hearts so that we can truly understand what the Scripture says about judgment. Let us keep always in mind that you are the authority behind all of this and that Jesus, judgment is one of the tools to establish and to sustain the increase of the government and of peace that rests on your shoulders. Help us to understand it better and then help us apply that to our trust and faith and the joy in our hearts as we anticipate the life to come. Amen. 